We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 14 and a text that I'm sure you're familiar with, Matthew chapter 14. And uh, we're going to read through the entire text uh, as we do the exposition. But uh, so I, I do want to get to the context a little bit here. So let's start at Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. This is uh, right after Jesus has fed the 5,000, but he has uh, heard, verse 13 of chapter 14 says, he heard that John, he heard about John, John had been beheaded by Herod, and uh, he withdrew there from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. But uh, he tried tried to get away, but he was... uh, he, was, he found an opportunity for ministry in feeding 5,000, so he took that. So this is at the end of that account. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, uh, many of you probably haven't heard of his name, but uh, he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years and a preacher in a church in Dallas for many more years than that. Uh, And I listened to his sermons uh, many, many times over the years. And uh, this particular message uh, about Jesus walking on the water, Dr. Johnson titled, The Impossible Life. In fact, this is the, the message, his message was, the Christian life is the impossible life. Because some things are impossible. Walking on water is impossible. Two examples. First, an amusing one. Chicago Tribune, June 13, 1966, headline, Walk on Water Attempt at, Ends at the Bottom. Bombay, now Mumbai, India, on June the 12th, L.S. Rao, R-A-O spelled, famed exponent of yoga, tried to live up to an announcement that he would walk on water without even getting his feet wet. 600 spectators from as far away as New Delhi, more than 600 miles away, paid $20 to $100 each to walk him watch on water. And they watched him warm up by swallowing what he said were steel tacks nitric acid, and walking over hot embers. Rael walked up to a steel tank filled with water, stepped in on the surface of the water, and sank straight to the bottom. As angry spectators demanded their money back, he explained that he had slipped yesterday and hurt his back, and because of that injury, he was unable to achieve levitation and invited them to come back and watch him try again tomorrow, I suppose without having to pay a second entrance fee. Second example, tragic example. Pastor Frank Cobble, 35, told his congregation that he was capable of reenacting the very miracles of Jesus. He decided to make that clear through a way of demonstration on Gabon's west Africa, coast of West Africa, Africa Beach in the capital city of Libreville, referencing Matthew 
14.22, Cable said that he had received a revelation, note that, received a revelation which told him that with enough faith he could achieve what Jesus was able to do. According to eyewitnesses, Cable took his congregation out to the beach, told them that he would cross the Combo estuary by foot, which normally takes a 20-minute ride by boat. Sadly, by the second step into the water, Cabo found himself completely submerged and never returned. One reporter added, maybe the Bible should come with a warning, don't try this at home. <laughs> Which is good advice. I would improve on that by saying, don't try to do what is impossible. It is impossible to walk on water. Now, some of you might say, well, in the account that I didn't, part of the account that I didn't read, Peter walked on water, at least a few steps. Jesus walked on water. Maybe if we just had more faith. Come on now. Maybe if we just had a little more faith. No. It is impossible. You cannot walk on water. That does not mean that it cannot happen. Now you're saying, Dr. Zuber, you're just playing riddles with us here. Well, stick with me. Let's think about it this way. The Christian life, as Dr. Johnson says, is the impossible life. It's impossible. The beginning of the Christian life is impossible. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. You know dead. You understand dead? It, dead, okay? People that are dead don't feel, they don't act, they don't talk. Been to plenty of funerals. The guest of honor is always the least lively person there. They're dead. The dead don't talk. The dead don't speak. They get, they can't do anything. We were dead in trespasses and sins. The dead cannot be saved by themselves. They cannot save themselves. It is impossible. And yet, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2.5. I am alive in Christ. It takes the Spirit of God to cause us to be born again, 1 Peter 1.3. Listen carefully. You're going to hear this over and over. Impossible for me, by me, but happens when the gift of faith is given in Christ, the Spirit of Christ, new life in Christ, for me and by Christ happens. Living the Christian life is impossible. Even as believers, Christians, we are saved, we're justified. We know this. We are assured. Praise God for Romans chapter 8, right? And yet we find ourselves so often in Romans chapter 7, don't we? Don't we find ourselves, isn't Romans 7 where we, we live? We want to do the good, but we find ourselves, what Paul says here, practicing practicing what I, not practicing what I would like to do, but doing the very thing I hate. Anybody want to give a testimony of that? No hands. <laughs> but plenty of examples, right? We are called to be holy also in all of our behavior as he is holy. We are called to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. We are called to pray without ceasing, abstain from every form of evil. And dozens of other admonitions like that that are impossible. 
for me, by me. And yet there is also this. I do show the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. I do. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control. I need some self-control. I need some patience. I need patience. I need patience. I need patience, and I need patience right now. I do love the brethren. I do. I love the brethren. Right now. Right? I love you all. But I'm going to get in my car in a little while, okay? And if you see a little red Mazda SUV, get out of the way. I, I do love the brethren. I do do all of that because I've been born again unto a living hope. I've been born of God. Because I have been born of God, I do love the brethren. By the way, in 1 John 5, 1, I believe on Jesus Christ because I've been born again. You think, wait a minute, doesn't it come first faith and then born again? No, it's I'm born again. I'm dead, and then I'm born again, and then I do all those things. I love the brethren and all those other kinds of things. How does it happen? Impossible for me by me. But I have been crucified with Christ. Me have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer me who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which me now live in the flesh, me live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, it's impossible. If it's up to us, it's impossible. But in Christ, it can happen and does happen. The ending of the Christian life is impossible. Our lives are going to either end with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for his bride, or we're going to die. We may be among those who are, whom Paul calls the dead in Christ when the rapture comes. In either case, that's not the end, for we will all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the perishable will put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on the immortality, and the dead in Christ will be raised. Let me assure you something. This isn't just something that uh, you know, modern people affirm. People through the ages have affirmed this. The dead never come back to life. The dead stay dead. But in Christ, we are going to be raised. It's impossible but Christ makes it happen. You notice I'm, I'm playing with words here, but it's important. I'm not saying it's impossible, but then it becomes possible. No, the impossible stays the impossible. It's impossible. Impossible for non-life, for the dead to come to life. It's impossible for you to live the Christian life. It's impossible for you to raise yourself up after your physical life is over, but it will happen for us by Christ. You must look to Christ in faith. It's not that if you have faith or have enough more faith. I've heard that over and over again. Well, if you just have enough faith, all things are possible. No, you can have all the faith in the world in the impossible 
it is never going to be made possible. But if you have faith in Christ, it can happen. Do you see the difference? These motivational speakers that say, well, anything's possible for you. No, it's not. There's plenty of stuff that's not possible for you. I remember talking to my younger brother one time, and I said, when did it dawn on you that you were never going to be the president of the United States? <laughs> Come on. I mean, at least in my generation, we were all going to, any one of you can become president of the United States. And I believe that lie. I believed it. Right up until the time that I realized it's impossible. That is never going to happen. Uh, I realized, too, the day that my uh, Major League Baseball career was not going to happen. Okay? Actually, that was only a few years ago. But nevertheless, <laughs> I did come to that realization at some point. That's impossible. It's not going to happen. Okay? Some things are just impossible. And I'm, I don't think it's really good Christian teaching. It's not good for us to think that with enough faith, the impossible becomes possible. That's not true. The impossible remains impossible. I want to make this clear. clear. Me plus Jesus does not make the impossible possible by me. It's always impossible by me. When me am attempting something, it stays impossible. But nothing is impossible for Jesus. What the angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, nothing is impossible for God. You get it? For me, it remains impossible Nothing is impossible for him. And he, he makes it happen for us. Well, perhaps uh, my point will become clearer as we get into this account. This is, I titled this account, Jesus Walks on Water and Peter Not So Much. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, what we're going to be looking at today. And the outline here is fairly clear, too. There are five ways in this account, five ways. I'll just leave it at that, five ways. So listen for the ways. You'll understand when we get into that, the ways. So the account actually begins. Let's back up here. The account begins with Jesus taking a getaway, verses 22 and 23. We already read them, those verses. Jesus needed a getaway. As I said in verse, you know, chapter 14, verse 13, he'd heard about John the Baptist's death and decided it's probably a good idea to withdraw for a while. But Jesus wasn't running scared here. Don't, under, don't well, I need to get away. I, you know, he's not trying to get away that way. It's, it, it was a prudent withdrawal because he seemed to, you know, the idea of keeping a lower profile was probably a good idea, but it was also a strategic time for him to get away because he needed a rest. He needed some respite. And uh, as indicated by uh, the parallel uh, account in Mark chapter 6, uh, this was part of the uh, uh, purpose for this, to get some rest. But the point is, Jesus is seeking the time to get away to pray. So to make sure there are more, no more distractions to his plans, immediately, verse 22 says, made them get into the boat. That word shows up a number of times. When it was evening, verse 23 says, when it was evening, which means this is the very evening that he, of the day that he fed the 5,000. So he, he, he compels them. He made them get in, into the boat. The word there, made, is a little more forceful in the original than it is in the uh, English. He made them get into the boat, and he dismissed the crowds. 
That's one thing. At the end of every service, when the preacher says, you're all dismissed, it's like, I don't like that. Do you like that? You're dismissed. You know? <laughs> I'd prefer something like, okay, it, it's over. Go home. Uh, you know, this is the end of the service. Uh, you know, those kind of things. But dismissed is dismissive. I don't like it. Uh, but nevertheless, he dismissed the crowds. He sent them away. Uh, and actually, the reason why he was so forceful here, Jesus was forceful with the crowds and the disciples, was because, again, in a parallel account in John, it indicates that he knew that they were trying to force him, they were trying to force him to become the king. And that wasn't what the plan was. And so he forces the crowds one way and the disciples another way just to get them away from the crowds so they don't get any ideas, okay? Uh, and says, uh, you go that way, you go that way. And he went on the mountain to pray. Some secondary, quickly, but practical applications. Time with God is not leisure time, but necessary time, okay? And first of all, he had served, and now it's time to pray. It's a false dichotomy to say, I'll serve one day, I'll pray another day, or I'll serve one time, and then I'll pray another time. Devotion is good here, but then I'll go over here and, and do serve. No, no, no. You know, you, well, I, I didn't come to church today. I was having devotions. Do both. You can do both. Like you can do more than both, okay? You can do a lot of stuff. Service and de- personal devotions are not mutually exclusive, okay? Jesus did it. And if Jesus thought it took necessary to take time to pray, even forced time to pray, then we should take time to pray. All right? By the way, I want all of you to tell Pastor Carl that I mentioned how important prayer was, okay, <laughs> in this message. So, quickly, back to the point. Then from Jesus' getaway, we turn to the disciples who find themselves in a bad way. That's way number two. So Jesus had a getaway. Now they're in a bad way. Uh, But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in a parallel account, or another account, I should say, back in Matthew chapter 8, there was a storm that rose. There's no storm here. It's just the wind. But the wind blowing against the boat creates, on the lake creates waves. So this isn't as dire a situation as that was, but that's kind of the point. Uh, the boat was, here's some other ways. The boat was way out, verse 24. The boat had already traveled a distance from the land. Uh, the Greek has stadius, polos, many stadia. Stadia was about 600 meters, one-eighth of a mile, and it was many stadia. So they're out in the middle of the lake. And the wind is against them. That's The wind is way up. Uh, and the boat's being battered by the waves. You don't, these boats were designed to fish from, not sail or get anywhere in. Okay? And they were designed for a particular purpose, so you'd go to a place and you'd stop and then you'd fish and then you'd go on. They're not, they're not, you, these boats aren't from get here to get their kind of boats. And so, although most sailing boats, if you're a sailor, any sailors here, you know that you can sail directly into the wind and make progress, but you've got to tack. You've got to, got to go back and forth. These boats were not equipped with that kind of sail, okay? So they're against it, basically, and the wind's blowing against them. That makes the water blow against them. These are experienced fishermen. They've been on this lake all their lives. They know how to do this, and they were having trouble. They were having difficulty. In Mark's account, it says, you know, they... They were, Mark mentions the oars. They were straining at the oars, Mark 6, 48. But even those oars are, again, not very efficient. So it was slow going, frustrating, aggravating, and getting serious. 
And the last uh, extra way here is the night was way spent. Verse 25 says it was the fourth watch of the night. There are, in a 12-hour night, there are um, four three-hour watches, and the fourth watch is the last watch, which is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., which means that he put them in the boat in the evening, and they've been struggling to get across the lake all night long. They're not in any serious danger, but they're, again, they're likely exhausted. Now, I don't really want to allegorize this account uh, at all, but it's not inappropriate to take the opportunity to consider something about our lives and our ways. Warren Worsby makes a good point here. Many Christians have mistakenly had the idea that obedience to God's will will produce smooth sailing, but that's not always true. We know that there are going to be trials, but in an odd sort of way, I don't know if you've ever sort of noticed this in your own life. I certainly have. When it comes to the big trials, when it comes to the really big things, the, the real trials, when you get the diagnosis, it's cancer. Or uh, with a loved one who's close to death. Or, or your home burns down. All true. <laughs> I've had all of those. Okay? I remember the night that I woke up, January the 16th, 1978. I looked out the uh, window of my mobile home and noticed the beautiful lights dancing on the snow until I realized that my trailer was on fire <laughs> underneath me. <laughs> and so I, I got, I, I got the, the cat out, and I got my wife out in that order. <laughs> I got them both out, okay? I got them both out, all right? Uh, and then I went back in to save this, the third most precious thing in my life was my books. <laughs> uh, you know, you know there, was a, there was a TV, there was a stereo, there was all that kind of stuff. No, save the books. But, uh, and the point is, is that uh, at those times, right, it's like, what are you going to do? It's impossible to handle this on my own. It's impossible. So what you do is you cry out, Lord, you know, it, it, it's, you, you've got it. But we're, we're not talking about it. I mean, this isn't the Matthew 8 scene where they're going to die. This is, this is, they're just tired and frustrated. Okay, so what do you do in those? Come on. What do you do in those is you handle it, okay? <laughs> I'm going to handle this, okay? I don't need, you know. And, and, and that's really kind of the point. What we really need to understand is, is that it's all impossible, Right? Your whole life is impossible. Nothing is possible for you. Some have uh, considered this passage and wondered, why didn't he come to them sooner? Why didn't he come sooner? Well, if he had, we wouldn't have this passage, okay? For instance, that's a good reason. I think because the lesson would be most keenly felt and learned if you let him struggle out there for a little while. Ever felt that? Why are you letting me struggle, Lord? This is impossible. Bingo. <laughs> you got it, okay? And that's the time. Jesus was a way. They were having a bad way. Here's way number three. Jesus found a way. Middle of verse 25. He came to them walking on the sea. Now, again, I've already said, walking on the sea, walking on the water is impossible. So keep that in mind as we're gauging the reactions of the disciples here. Verse 26 says that when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. Actually, that's not a good translation. I hate to, always, hate to correct the NASB 95, 
which is, you know, if, if Paul used NESB 95, it's good enough for me, okay? The, uh, but, uh, but actually, that's, that's a little too strong, terrified. The word is often translated troubled, although the note that they cried out in fear doesn't do much for their manliness at this point. Uh, nevertheless, they were more than startled, less than terrified. Again, they were exhausted, they were frustrated. This is important. They were not expecting to see Jesus walking on the water, okay? They weren't expecting that. It's, it's always, it's always the, when we read these kind of stories, we go, well, of course Jesus came walking on the water. What else would Jesus do if he came walking on the water? No, that's, that's totally unexpected, okay? So you got to give them a break with that. They saw him walking on the sea. They saw something where something like that shouldn't be. Now, what's really interesting is that they said, is what they said. It's a ghost. <laughs> where does that come from? Okay? What is, what, a ghost? You don't read about too many ghosts, apart from the Holy Ghost. You don't read about too many ghosts in the Bible. A ghost, what, how, what would make them think it's a ghost? The Greek word here is phantasma. Okay? Uh, a phantasm. It's usually used of deceased persons, demons, often malevolent, and hence their fear. What I think is happening here is is that deep down, of course, you know, you you wouldn't expect the disciples to give any credence to the notion of ghosts. That unless they see one, okay, uh, or something they think is one, what ha- what's happening here is this: that in a time of crisis, in a time of trouble they revert back to a former way of thinking, okay? This, this is like, oh, you know, suddenly they find themselves thinking, okay, no explanations, it must be a ghost. Well, you've already been told there are no ghosts. Oh, it's a ghost, it's a ghost, things like that. Ghosts are impossible, okay? But yet they gave, the, they gave it some credence. They, gave it, they suggested in a moment of fear, they reverted back to a previous way of thinking, Again, anybody want to give a testimony on that one? Okay. This, this may be too much information. There are certain words I haven't used for a really long time, except the day that the guy all ran into my car. <laughs> it was like, who said what? Who said that? And it was like, okay, immediately repent. But that's what's going on here. And you're all looking at me like Dr. Zuber. Come on, come on. But it's because, again, it's unexpected. They're in a moment like that. And so this is exactly the point that Jesus comes. I love, this is the heart of this particular part of this account. Verse 27, look at it. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Actually, the way the original reads in that last phrase is stop being afraid because they're both imperatives. Stop it. Again, Jesus doesn't rebuke them when they see him but don't know him. This is sort of like the resurrection accounts. People see him but they don't know him. Why? Because they're not expecting that. They're not expecting to see him because seeing isn't necessarily believing. And it's always instructive to say, well, then what does reassure them? And I want you to see this very clearly. What does reassure them at this moment? What reassures them is his voice. What reassures them is his word. 
what reassures them, in fact, what does more than just reassure them, what, what enables them at this particular moment is what he says to them. He spoke to them. It's, it's the voice that reassures. The shepherd's voice reassures, and we're his sheep, and we hear his voice, and we follow him. We don't need an audible voice today because we have his voice right here. This is what reassures. And what he says is, look what he says. Well, what he says is in three parts, but I want you to see the middle part there. He says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid or stop being afraid. Actually, that middle phrase, that middle phrase there is just two Greek words, ego eimi, or I am. I am. Right there in the middle. It may evoke the uh, echoes of the I am statements in John's gospel. Leon Morris says there are certainly indications of deity in this expression. He's not only Jesus, that would be a good reason to be reassured once they recognize who it is. Well, it's Jesus, but then again, he's walking on the water, and we're stuck here in this boat. Uh, it's, it's clearly no longer a, a ghost, it's Jesus speaking, but it's the I am who is speaking. And, and you have to, again, put it together, so they're in this boat, the wind is against them, they're starting to get concerned, it's getting to be serious, what would have come into their minds? He had already done this for them back in chapter 8, all right? He had already stilled the storm. He had already done it, and nothing's been stilled yet. That's, you know, it doesn't get stilled for a, a few verses here, but it's Jesus. It's I am. Take courage. Take courage and then stop being afraid. One does not dispel his or her fear and then become courageous you don't say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be fearful anymore, and, and then be... No, you dispel fear by taking courage. Courage replaces the fear. It happens to us. It happened to them. They didn't do it themselves. He did it to them with his words. Take courage. The, the term here for take courage, this is important, so I drilled down a little bit further in a word study, one source says, this, the Greek word here is tharaseo, tharaseo, Greek students, seminary students, never use Greek words in the pulpit, okay? All right, you say, well, you are. I am Dr. Zuber, okay? <laughs> All right, the, the word is tharaseo. One source says, tharaseo, emboldened to show courage, refers to God bolstering the believer. Darceo, giving them the bold inner attitude to be of good courage. For the believer, Tharseo, showing boldness, is the result of the Lord infusing his strength by the inworking of faith. You get it? It's, it's the result of the Lord working faith in you. Do not think you do it. You don't do it. You're, it's not your faith. Your faith does nothing. Your faith in Jesus Christ is what gives courage. And, and we're going to see the, the rest of the account is an illustration of that major point. 
Simply put, they're afraid, but he doesn't say stop being afraid. He infuses them with the courage they need to be to stop being afraid. And what does that come from? It comes from I am. It comes from the one who is saying it. It makes all the difference in the world who's saying stop being afraid. Doesn't it? Okay, so you're in bed late at night and you hear this loud noise in the backyard and your wife says, go see what that is. <laughs> Don't be afraid. <laughs> I, I wasn't afraid until you brought it up. Okay. <laughs> I was perfectly okay until he's afraid. Should I be afraid? Should I? Take courage. <laughs> I'm right behind you. No. <laughs> uh, it's faith in Christ. It's the power of Christ. It's the encouragement of Christ. It happens to us. It happens for us by him. Please understand, the point here is that no matter what it is, if it's impossible, you can't gin up enough faith to do anything about it. And frankly, there's a great deal of life, I might say almost all of life, I might take the almost out, and say, you can't do it. It's impossible for you. It's impossible for me. It certainly is impossible for me to to be a Christian, sustain myself as a Christian, or at the end of my life, be raised from the dead. I can't do that. All of that is impossible, but it all happens because of Christ. Well, what's interesting about this particular account is, is that Uh, As I said, it shows up in Mark, it shows up in John, and this is unusual for Matthew's gospel. Matthew has a part of the account that doesn't show up in the other accounts. This is, it goes on, the part that I didn't read from verse 28 and following. What's uh, interesting about this is is that it's a chiasmus. Uh, Dr. Hargrove told us what a chiasmus was a long time ago, so you already know what that is. It's really not pertinent to the to the point, but uh, you know, I'm Dr. Zuber. I like to show that I know these kind of things. <laughs> anyway, the point is, is that this is the fourth way, and it's Peter's way. Of course, it's Peter. Who else would do it? Okay, of course, it's going to be Peter. All right, you would expect the account to end, and Jesus got out of the boat, and everything, you know, and they sailed to the other side. But no, no, Peter, <laughs> you know, open mouth, insert foot. This is what he does. Okay, he's got to he's got to be speaking up. And of course, in some ways, this is commendable. In some ways, this is like, again, this is a, another lesson in what we just learned. Some things are impossible, but it happens to us because of Christ. So here it is, verse 28, Peter's way. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, by the way, that if doesn't mean it's iffy, okay? In fact, the way that this is put in the original, he knows. Lord, it's you, it's, it's you, he's finally, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I like that part. Because he doesn't say, uh, I command you to Jesus. <laughs> it's like a lot of the prosperity preachers do. I command you to give him. No, no. If you command me, okay, he's got the right order. In fact, he's just learned the lesson. Impossible for me. I can't walk on water. But if you command me, it will happen. You get it? It's like he understands. Stop there, Peter. Just stop. <laughs> but no. <clears throat> command me to come to you on the water. And he said, 
come. And that's also, that's an imperative. So he did give the command. It's actually an aggressive heiress, which means start to come. Come on, come on. So he calls out to Peter. And verse 29, Peter goes. Peter got out of the boat. Now look at carefully how this is put, okay? Matthew has, has put this in a way, the way he puts it, it's just, you can picture the scene. Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and came toward Jesus. It's impossible. It's, it, that's impossible to do. Can you, what, by the way, what we don't have here in this account is what the other disciples were thinking. Go. Go, Peter. <laughs> Go, man. Look at Peter. He, oh, he's doing it. He's walking. He's walking on water. We don't know. But you also don't read, anybody followed him, okay? <laughs> go, I'm not going. Okay, you go. Peter got out of the boat. How far he got is not indicated. Uh, but verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became frightened. Now, how do you see the wind? Okay. <laughs> okay, how do you see? Well, you see the waves, you see everything going. And, and he, be, he became frightened. There he's, there's fear again. Wait a minute. Fear had been dispelled. Take courage. It is I. Stop being afraid. You, 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 that must have gotten through. Otherwise, he wouldn't even have gotten to the point where he would think about getting out of the boat. He's not, he's not, he's not fear. He's looking at Jesus. This is the key. Jesus says, come, he's going, he goes, he's going toward Jesus. That's what verse 29 says. Notice the careful language, came toward Jesus. He's got his eyes on Jesus. He's making progress. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. The point could hardly be more obvious, can it? As long as he was focused on Jesus, He's making progress toward Jesus. But when his concentration shifts from Jesus, when he starts to see the wind, he starts to see the waves, he starts to see the circumstances that he's in, what happens? It hits him. This is impossible. This is not possible. And now, again, and beginning to sink. Now, again, don't, you don't begin... Okay, what 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 happens in those instances? Wasn't like his faith was like the meter on his faith was going down, and Peter was going into the water to the degree that his faith was fading. It, it's instantaneous, beginning to sink. As soon as he starts to feel it, he's he. What does he do? He becomes frightened, and he cries out to Jesus. He cries out, Lord. Save me. Now, there's an interesting dynamic going on here. What's, what happens was, is, you know, so he, his faith in Jesus was his focus. He could walk on water. Then he starts to sink. You would say, well, did his faith fail? Well, not completely, because what did he do? Lord, save me. I mean, his focus. He didn't start back for the boat. You know, it wasn't like he started swimming, okay, or anything like that. 
None of the disciples jumped in to save him. Where are those guys through this whole thing? Okay. <laughs> What's going on? The Lord, he doesn't say, hey, guys, guys, throw me around. Not, nothing like that. He does the only thing he can do, which is, Lord, save me. Now, that's, that's really good. That's the point. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary at this point, says, this is a good illustration of genuine faith, but real faith. Like, like us, this incident is a good illustration of tr- the trusting nature of true faith, but it's also an illustration of faltering faith, which is like the faith of most of us. But notice it's, Lord, save me. At that moment, when he's got nothing else, he, 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 his mindset, his, his focus returns to Christ. That's the point. When things are going well, we think we're making progress on, on our own, then we start realizing it's impossible. But keep your focus on Christ. Keep your focus on Him. You call out to Him. I, this is a good... Well, verse 31. Verse 31 says, Immediately Jesus stretched out His hand and took hold of Him. So Jesus... So, I mean, again, this is all immediate. So Peter's walking, suddenly starts, whoop, Jesus, save me. It all happens in an instant. And the Lord grabs him. It may be a good place to point out that Jesus could walk on the matter, no matter what he was looking at. Did you ever notice that? Jesus is not looking, you know, Jesus could look at the wind and the waves and Peter and the boat and everything else, and he's doing fine. He is the source of the courage and the faith. He doesn't need more courage and faith. Nothing is impossible for him. And he saves Peter. And then this is the hard part for some people reading this account. He rebukes Peter. You of little faith. In fact, you know, this is, this is the previous account. He's, he chided the disciples as a whole for their lack of faith. Here it's you. It's like you, Peter, of little faith. Now, again, I want to emphasize little faith is better than no faith. Little faith is, is enough to save you. That's exactly what, you know, this saved him physically, but that's exactly what it is with us. But then he says, why did you doubt? Jesus is rebuking Peter for letting circumstances get between him and Jesus. Let me say that again. Jesus is rebuking Peter for letting the circumstances get between him, Peter, and Jesus. Peter's looking at the circumstances. Come on, folks. This is, this is, this is, this is where we, we, we translate back into real life. Isn't that it? I mean, when we get our eyes off Jesus and start looking at the circumstances, we start looking at the wind and the waves. In fact, we don't even look at the wind and waves. We just got to look at the traffic on five. We start looking at the bills that come every day in the mail. We start looking at our recalcitrant children, which in the Old Testament they could stone, but we can't. Okay? <laughs> We start looking at all the difficulties of our lives. We look at all of the different circumstances we've got. And we start to sink. So what's the response? Lord, save me. I got nothing else. Listen, you never had anything else. You never had anything else. It's all impossible. The first part of this message. It's all been impossible. It's impossible. If you've made any progress at all, like Peter's first few steps on the way. If you made any progress at all, it's because of him. It's because of Christ. 
You've, you've had your eyes on Christ a little. You can make little progress. You keep your eyes on Christ. You'll keep making progress. You start to look around at the circumstances of life. You're going to sink. Not to allegorize this, but that's the point. When you start thinking, hey, look at me. I'm making progress for me, by me. You know what? That, you'll, you'll, you're, you're sinking already. You've already started to lose it. It's not me. It's Christ who has it happen for me. I don't have to still the wind. That's impossible. I don't have to walk on water. That's impossible. I don't have to be sinless. That's impossible. I don't have to be doing this on my own, for me, by me, because I can't. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He can, he does, he is. His spirit works in me, Romans 8, 11. His promise to me is sure, John 14, 1 through 4. Look at the reassurance in verse 27 again. Look at that again. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. When we forget that and put in, take courage, you can do it. Don't be afraid, you're already on your way down. Because why? You tell me. It's impossible. Let me say that again. You can't, it, you can't do it because it's impossible. impossible. That's good. Everybody's going to go out. What is Uber's sermon on today? Oh, it's impossible. <laughs> it, was, it was just all impossible. That's what I want you to get. The outcome, the final way, way five is Jesus' way. Verse 32. They got into the boat and the wind stopped. Don't, the, when did the wind stop? When they got into the boat. Jesus didn't take away the circumstances. Until they got into the boat, okay? Peter started, he's looking at the wind. Hey, Peter, let me show you what the wind's going to do to us. Let's, come on, with me, let's go. Let's get in the boat, okay? And then the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you're certainly God's son. Now, I hate to do this to you, but that is the main point of this account. The main point is, is, is not the lessons that we've drawn out on the way, but the main point is this, and we've really already kind of seen it, you are certainly God's son. That's, that's what this whole account is driving at. Why does Matthew have this here in his, in his uh, gospel? He has it here so that you will see, you will understand, this is another one of the steps along the way that demonstrates that they were coming to realize he truly is God's son. What's really interesting is, as we've referenced it a number of times, the first incident like this, back in Matthew 8, 23 through 27, the first storm incident ends with this question. Remember after he, he stilled the storm and everything? There was a question. The disciples said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? What have they come to understand now? He's not just a man. He is the I am. He is the son of God. The expression, of course, means they began to see him finally as, a, as deity, as God. It's interesting, again, that Jesus didn't sink at all. It didn't make any difference what he was looking at. Because while it's all impossible for us, Luke 1, there is nothing impossible for God. One more time, it doesn't become possible for you. It can't happen. It's impossible. It does happen with Jesus. 
Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to open the Word of God together with these dear saints. We're grateful for this, for the truth of your Word, and for the utter assurance it is that while we may not always recognize the impossibility, there's enough of that that we can confess we have begun to sink time and again. And when we cry out, Lord, save us, you're always faithful. Because you always are the great I am, because you always are God, for whom nothing is impossible. And that is our assurance and our hope. Lord, what is of your truth and your word today, may you finish it in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.